Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of Casual Criminalist. As always, hello there, I'm your host Simon Wamsdale, one of my writers in this case. Preparation, Simon, looking at this for the first time. Kevin has written me a script, thank you Kevin. It's all about Lizzie Borden, innocent or axe murderer. Uh, I am familiar with this story. This is definitely one of the more famous, like, true crime, murdery ones out there. I think I've even made a video about Lizzie Borden on my biographics channel where we do biographies of famous people and looking into all of this stuff. But enough. I don't want to spoil it. Kevin writes it for me. I read it. Jen, afterwards our wonderful video editor, is going to edit the video. That's how it works here. Let's just crack on, shall we? I can't help but imagine that growing up in the 1980s was a lot different for kids than it is today. Getting in trouble at recess as a small child was very difficult to do back then. Granted, what most of us did was harmless, like playing tag or fooling around on the slide and monkey bars. I don't know. I feel like I, I, I was 90s, and I feel like getting in trouble, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't that hard. Why is it harder today? Or it's very easier today. At my elementary school, we even created our own game for recess called Kill the Man with the Ball. The rules were self-explanatory. Someone had a ball, and they ran around trying to hold it as long as possible, while 30 other children traced them trying to beat the <laughs> out of them. Ah. I love this. It's exactly... Yeah. My, I feel like we did similar things at school. It would just be like... It, just, it would just escalate to, like, not violence. It wasn't like you'd be punching someone in the face. But it would get, like... It would escalate to horseplay very quickly. But even as we were teenagers, I remember there was like a there was a pool table in like the common area, and the pool cues were just completely ruined because, as well as playing pool, we'd also use them to like sword fight. So people would just be like absolutely smashing these cues against each other, against each other's bodies. It was it was crazy. Love that. Not a single teacher saw a problem with this game, despite all of us yelling the name of the game very loudly while running around. But <laughs> no recess activities were physical in nature. Sometimes the entire class would break out into song. It's hard to believe this happens anymore, except maybe during that brief period when sea shanties were all the rage on TikTok. And it really is a shame. What are sea shanties? I have no idea what this is. I, I don't... Like, someone... I was like... I feel... I'm not... Don't get me wrong. I am not a social media influencer i make youtube videos i present videos on the internet don't get me confused my instagram i haven't i have an instagram account i haven't posted to it in years because i don't care for any of that stuff and then but i do feel i am more in this world than just a regular mate of mine regular job lives in the uk and we were like messaging on whatsapp and he's like oh man that is exactly like this thing and i'm like what is this thing and he's like oh it's this tiktok trend and i'm like oh my god <laughs> Can't we just be middle-aged together? Oh, come on. Come on. We, we should be shouting, get off my lawn at kids. Not being au fait with TikTok trends. Come on. There were certain schoolyard songs and rhymes that, aside from minor variations, seemed to find their way across the entire country, despite living in a pre-internet world. I feel like British children were more civilized, so these songs may be new to Simon, but you can forget such recess classics as... On top of the schoolyard, all covered with blood, I shot my poor teacher with a 44 slug. Holy sh! I feel like nowadays you say that and they'll be like FBI, because people do shoot their teachers and their fellow school students, which is insanity. You shouldn't be saying that. You can't be saying that these days, right, America? You can't be singing that. 
because it's it's too close to home because it happens or for the more religious types glory glory hallelujah i could sing this but i don't like singing glory glory hallelujah teacher hit me with a ruler oh my god i don't even want to sing it anymore because i pre-read the next lines before i got there i sent her up to heaven with an ak-47 and she ain't gonna teach no more oh my god the only unrealistic part of that is the ak-47 because it can't be automatic right ak-47 is an automatic there probably is a fucking civilian version of the ak-47 isn't there because of course there is and i'm sure you could probably buy it at walmart jesus america second amendment <laughs> i'm not exaggerating when i say that there were many many more examples of songs about the murder about murder that we sang as four to seven year olds but I'm guessing that shit hasn't flown since 1999. Was 1999 Columbine? I think so. However, there was one rhyme in particular that struck out as different. Lizzie Borden had an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. And when she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. I'm familiar with this one, probably because it's well known because there's loads of videos about Lizzie Borden. And I've probably made one or two sure the central theme is still about murder but this wasn't about us murdering our teachers it was some girl named lizzie that we'd never heard of despite the fact that teachers and other adults certainly heard us recite this rhyme none of them bothered to actually tell us the actual story of what happens the best answer we could have got was that it was some local girl who killed her parents which told us little more than the rhyme did well i told you they were local but are they just telling everyone that this is local where was lizzie borden from kevin's he brings it up often i know kevin's from massachusetts he's, uh, he's like north north northeast the united states and so if he if maybe maybe lizzie borden was from massachusetts let's see since my teachers never got around to telling me the story of lizzie borden and that rhyme it's high time we learned it together but let's make a game of it you see simon made a biographics video about lizzie borden nearly four years ago oh my god kevin if this game is will i remember anything about it i can tell you i've already lost the game because the answer is no iris i was like will i be would i be good on who wants to be a millionaire because i basically spend my day reading interesting quest like answers to questions and so i did one of those who wants to be a millionaire quizzes I think I got to like 32,000 fairly uh, reliably. Ignore I had to ignore the ones where it's like, because up to a thousand dollars, they're these super obvious questions. But if I take the pro if I take the American one, I just will get it wrong because it'll be like, for a hundred dollars, what is the you know name of the baseball stadium? in new york calls whatever and apparently this is something that every single american knows and i'll just be i have no idea and they'll they'll just give these and one of them or two of them may be obviously false but two of them could be okay for like a hundred dollars i don't know so i could get it up there but then on the british one obviously i get them all right but then i feel like my knowledge of american cultures better or like history and stuff is better like for the more advanced questions because like 70 percent of people watch are americans so there's like 350 million of you so i'm more catered towards that audience oh anyway let's uh let's carry on so prepare for tangents galore as he tries to recall all of the details of the case every time simon says something immediately before it appears in my script drink <laughs> already remembers the detail incorrectly take a shot and be sure to get in the comments at the end of the video with your blood alcohol level don't do this if you're driving <laughs> not recommend it although 
uh, on my subreddit people are like there's often there's the drinking games for the various shows there's the uh the bingo for the various shows <laughs> i have a shot every time simon says allegedly <laughs> now allow me to regale you with the tale of massachusetts's most famous unsolved murder there you go look kevin bring it back kevin must love massachusetts because he's always talking about massachusetts the only thing i know about massachusetts is uh there's lots of big brain universities there right harvard Yale there? MIT? These are big big brain universities. Is Yale there? Maybe Yale's not there. Maybe Yale's somewhere else. I don't know. But it doesn't matter. Let's just move on. Andrew Borden. Andrew Jackson Borden was born in Fall River, Massachusetts in 1822. He may have been descended from wealth and power, but he still grew up in modest circumstances. It's unclear if his parents lost their money or somehow never inherited anything from his grandparents, but as a young man, Andrew struggled financially. Eventually, he found his calling, or at least he found a way to make some money that he could invest. His first success came from manufacturing furniture, specifically caskets. To give you an idea, or caskets, caskets, caskets? Casket sounds weird, but then caskets sounds like I'm trying to sound like I'm from the north. Oh god, who knows. To give you an idea of just how popular Andrew was around town, the running joke was that he saved money by cutting the feet off corpses to fit them in smaller caskets. Why not just bend the knees? Oh! In America, the caskets are open, which is so weird. It's like, yeah, let's have a look at dead grandpa. That's I've never seen a dead body. I've brought this up before. Because we don't have open casket funerals. We find it weird. <laughs> I assume that's a joke, but I wouldn't put it past him. His casket sales, combined with being a penny-pinching miser, were enough for him to invest and branch out. Andrew owned a number of properties, including commercial properties, and became director of several textile mills. He also became director of one bank and president of another. Busy dude! He's making some coin! Despite being about as well-liked as Ebenezer Scrooge, Andrew did marry Sarah Anthony Morse, with whom he had two children. I mean, the good news is, look, if no one likes you, get rich, and you'll be able to get married anyway! Solve the problem! Ah, <laughs> uh, the first child, uh, Emma Lenora Borden, was born in 1851. The second child, Al Alice Esther Borden, was born in 1856, but died before her second birthday. His third child, Lizzie Andrew Borden, Yes, Lizzie was a Christian name, not a nickname for Elizabeth, uh, would not be born until nine years later, on July the 18th, 1860. Three years later, Sarah would die of uterine congestion and spinal disease. I kind of find it cool when people have like, what's your name? It's like Phil. Is that short for Philip? No. Like a friend of mine, his kid's called Max. And I, is that short for Maximilian or something? He's like, no, it's just straight Max. Like Max. I like, that's cool. <laughs> it's cool. It took only three more years for Andrew to find a new wife, Abby DeFree Gray. The children believed that Abby married their father for his money, which may very well be true, but it wasn't necessarily the smartest of plans. <laughs> well, we already described that he was about as liked as Ebenezer Scrooge, so um, probably the money. Andrew was 41 years old at the time, and Abby was 35, so she was a little younger than him, but hardly a young trophy wife. Average life expectancies weren't what they are today, but they were trending upwards, and it was very likely they would live into at least their 70s. Abby was going to have to be prepared to shit in a pot by candlelight for the next three decades in order to enjoy Andrew's money in the final years of her life, assuming she was able to outlive him. Oh, because he was rich, but he was just such a miser? I just assumed he was kind of like a business miser. But he was also a miser in his life as well. Okay. 
That's unfortunate. You see, despite both things being common amenities for people of their status, Andrew refused to pay for either electricity or indoor plumbing for his house. Dude. It's like, I don't know. I'm like, I'm like not cheap. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I am. But like, the basic I'll still, it's like, it's the basic I'll still pay for. You know, like electricity. <laughs> Despite owning a good deal of real estate, he also chose to live in a poorer area of Fall River, close to the industrial complexes, rather than living on the hill, the area of town where the wealthy elites lived. But you don't get rich by spending money, especially on your daughters, who won't even get married. Yeah, you won't get rich by spending money. But I do feel this is one of those uh, fallacies where it's like, yeah, but you, you definitely don't get rich by saving money either. You get rich by making money. It's like you're not going to save your way into being like rich it's just it's just not gonna happen emma and lizzie emma and lizzie's biological mother had died when lizzie was a toddler so she would have little if any memory of her mother emma however did remember her mother as well as the promise she made her the 12 year old emma promised to be a mother to lizzie a promise she would take very seriously lizzie always saw emma as more of a mother than a big sister and neither girl was happy when their father remarried neighbors claimed that abby was a kind woman who tried tirelessly to earn the affection of her stepdaughters but it was all in vain emma would only refer to abby by her first name never calling her mother to be fair emma was 12 when her mother died and 15 when her father remarried so this seems to like the expected response from a teenager in that position yeah i don't read anything into that i have a stepmom who i love dearly and i don't call her mum. i call her by her name but that doesn't mean anything to me. I think I was just too old when my dad remarried or whatever that situation is. Because my sister, my younger sister called, called her mum, but I didn't. But I, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean anything to me. It doesn't say anything. Like, I... I fascinating insight there simon carry on if lizzie would have accepted her new mother without the influence of her older sister is something we can never know regardless of whether it was solely the result of following emma's example or not lizzie would also never refer to abby as mother instead calling her mrs borden okay i definitely don't call, <laughs> call my stepmom mrs whistler though i call her by her name even though the girls seem to hate their stepmother by all accounts their household was believed to be relatively peaceful lizzie's disdain for abby was one of the few things she liked to talk about in school but things were much quieter at home one easy way to achieve this harmonious coexistence with the person they despised was simply to avoid the problem and the two girls were noted as rarely ever eating dinner with their parents growing up in school lizzie wasn't an unpopular girl per se she didn't have many friends but she wasn't bullied and hated either the massive childhood trauma of losing her mother likely played a large role in how lizzie's personality in how lizzie's personality developed but she generally liked to be left alone and to keep to herself this probably worked out well as she wouldn't have really fit in despite not being allowed to live the life of luxury her father's wealth would have afforded it was no secret that the family had money lizzie couldn't go to parties and social gatherings on the hill with her cousins and other family members that her father as her father thought it was a waste of money but the poorer class around whom she lived also knew that lizzie wasn't one of them as a teenager in school she was noted to have a single friend but this doesn't seem to have been the cause of any mental anguish yeah that's a position to be in it's like you're too rich to hang out with the poor kids but too poor to hang out with the rich kids because your dad doesn't spend any money on you that's kind of <laughs> probably not anyway but also it's hard to say wait what's hard to say oh causing mental anguish sorry 
Sometimes the tangents go on for so long that I forget where I am. My apologies. Mental health wasn't looked at in the 19th century in the same way that it is today. No <laughs> Like, doctoring in the past was mad. Mental health doctoring in the past was mad. Like, what are you doing? While Lizzie was in school, it would still be another 15 years before Sigmund Freud would even begin his work with psychoanalysis over in Europe. Doctors could still identify what they referred to as women's problems, things like hysteria or the vapors, and there absolutely was a prescription for that, and we'll get to that later. Yeah, I get the feeling I know what it is, but I'm not going to spoil it, but it's weird. Alright, back to her school days. Lizzie was a good student. She wasn't known for being particularly bright, but she took her studies seriously and always got good grades, until she got bored with it and dropped out of school at the age of 16. She may not have been brilliant, but she was known for having a sarcastic, quick wit that she was more than happy to use any time another student saw fit not to leave her alone. Emma and Lizzie had a religious upbringing, which would go on to play a major role in Lizzie's life. She may not have had a lot of friends at school, but she was very involved in church activities. She even went on to be a Sunday school teacher at the Central Congressional Church and was the secretary treasurer of the Christian Endeavor Society. Just before we continue with today's show, big thank you to Honey for sponsoring it. Also, thank you to Honey for making manual searching of coupon codes a thing of the past. Oh, no longer, because Honey is the free shopping tool that scours the internet for promo codes and applies the best ones it finds to your cart. So, how does it work? Well, you're just shopping online, ba -da 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 -da, doing your thing, and then you get to the checkout, and you know, sometimes there's that little box, and it's like, insert coupon, and you're like, oh, I don't have a coupon, but I feel like I should have. And you go to Google, and you search through all those websites, and there's a bunch of stuff that doesn't work, and then you're like, oh, okay, I'll just give up and pay full price. With Honey, all you do, you, you have their browser extension, um installed plugged in whatever you call it these days and then that box honey will be like hello i've got some codes for you bada bing bada boom and it applies the best coupon available and uh you save a bunch of money which is super nice i i have to say like i don't save on a bunch of you know physical items because I don't know. I live in Czech Republic. I don't think there's like that many stores that are plugged into Honey. But I do save on all the digital stuff. It works for like digital stuff as well. Like I'll be buying something, you know, like a digital subscription or whatever, and I'll be like, hello, Honey's got a code for you. And uh, that's brilliant. And I think, you know, elsewhere, namely America, <laughs> it works on like physical stuff you order as well, which is pretty amazing. Thank you, Honey. Also, Honey doesn't just work on the desktop. It works on your iPhone too. Just activate it on Safari on your phone and you can save on the go. So look, if you don't have Honey, you could be straight up missing out. And by guessing it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this show. I use Honey. I wouldn't recommend it if I didn't. So get Honey for free at joinhoney.com casual. That's joinhoney.com casual. And now back to today's show. Spinsters. As the years went on, Emma and Lizzie remained at the house where they lived with Andrew and Abby. They became what was known as spinsters, single women who were past the age that was deemed that women should be married. There's a lot of spe <laughs> this is this is going to be the past. It's like 28. <laughs> Holy. There's a lot of speculation regarding why neither women ever married, much of which is foolish. Neither Emma nor Lizzie were terribly attractive, but they weren't terribly ugly either. Factor in their family's wealth and that the miserly patriarch was now in his 60s, and suddenly those two start to look a whole lot better. It's harder to speak to why Emma never got married, but there are a myriad of reasons why Lizzie would not, which don't involve resorting to weird conspiracy theories. For starters, during this time period, there was what was commonly referred to as a surplus 
of women because women are obviously commodities. Yeah, get me some like surplus. It's like, look at that supply to Margaret. Excess of supply of women. Again, the past everybody. This gender imbalance was particularly prevalent in New England. It's not unreasonable to believe that sharp tongue, the sharp tongue wit of Lizzie would be less than appreciated by potential suitors who would instead opt for a more docile and subservient woman. Surely, though, there were still men in the past who wanted a woman who was not just subservient and docile but could actually, you know, repost with, uh, repost with them and stuff. Because that's going to be more interesting than just being like, how was your day, dear? It was lovely. Thank you. Where's dinner? Because <laughs> he's just very, very boring. <laughs> Far from obedient, Lizzie was an activist. She was a member of various social movements, most notably the Women's Christian Temperance Union. From their name, they were obviously in favor of things like prohibition and keeping businesses closed on Sundays, the, the latter of which was actually still the law in Massachusetts when I was a child, Puritans. Dude, I, I, for the whole day, that's crazy. But like, even as a kid in the UK, Sunday trading hours, I think still might even be a thing to this very day. It's been a long time since I lived in the UK. but shops when i was a kid or not even a young kid like teenager young adult um they could like tesco's big tesco's could only open for like six hours on a sunday like by law and it's like this is insanity just for what that like is this the past people go to church no one goes to church anymore and if they want to work let them work come on i worked in a, a small supermarket small stores are immune from this and i would work like 10 hours on a sunday when i was at school because i wanted money and if they were like you could only work six hours i'd be like oh and this was the only store around i'd be like well that sucks i can only work six hours they'd be like do you want to work extra hours and they'd be like bro i will work 18 hours like my sunday is gone anyway i will work and and i wanted my like three pounds 97 or whatever it was now nah, and i'd work those 12 hours and i'd be like yeah i got like 80 quid boom which for like 16 year old simon was a lot of money Aside from those two examples, however, many of the causes championed by the organization were progressive. Lizzie was working to fight for women's suffrage and against sexual harassment in the workplace. The organization also wanted to combat poverty and help immigrants assimilate to life in the United States. All good causes. Great. It's a shame about that you can't drink and you better get your ass in church on Sunday. <laughs> It's like I gotta pick and choose some things from your organization that I want to support. Unlike her miserly and curmudgeonly father, Lizzie was a generous and compassionate soul who wanted to see social change, most of which was progressive in nature. Massachusetts had only passed their Married Women Property Act five years before Lizzie was born. Prior to this, while single women could own and sell property and enter into contracts, a married woman was no longer an actual person. She was just an extension of her husband. <laughs> By virtue of this is so crazy. By virtue of marriage, women essentially forfeited their rights. This law changed that, allowing women to own and sell property, control their earnings, whereas previously any paychecks they earned at the few jobs available for women went to the husbands and to make wills and sue people. This would have been the law for over 20 years by the time Lizzie was marrying age, but you could be sure that there were still some sour grapes over the whole matter. But this bloody uppity woman wasn't happy enough just being able to have her own money. She wanted to vote as well. Pfft. 
Outrageous. Sounds like too much of a handful for your typical 1880s era man from the Northeast. There's one other important reason that may have prevented Lizzie and Emma from getting married, as it was a leading cause of the growing spinster population. The reason, of course, was love. In the late 18th and early 19th centuries, there was a big push in society for people to marry out of love rather than a predominantly transactional institution. Once this happened, even in areas with so-called surpluses of women, the population of unwed women increased as women held out looking for the right man or maybe lizzie which is gay. There's a lot of speculation about this that's pretty baseless. The key evidence seems to be that a physician referred to her as having manly characteristics, and a witness at her trial mentioned her having a low voice, but even that could have meant soft rather than deep, as she was known to be rather reserved. From this, combined with an extremely vague love note that could have been written for literally anyone, many people assume that Lizzie never married because she was engaged in a relationship with the family's live-in maid, Bridget. But for whatever reason, neither of the girls married Emma and Lizzie would live with their father and stepmother into Emma's 40s and Lizzie's 30s. They may not have gotten along, what with Andrew being an unlikable douchebag and Abby not being their real mother, but everyone was at least cordial and there was no evidence of any fighting or domestic disputes in the house. This was made easier by Emma and Lizzie spending as much of their time as possible away from the house in their vacation home in New Bedford. 20 miles away. Why not just, just live in the vacation home? <laughs> just move there. Done. Problem solved. New Bedford. Lovely. Tensions mount. Though the family remained polite enough with one another, tensions began to mount in the months leading up to the murder. The major catalyst of these disagreements was money and property. Seemingly out of the blue, Andrew had given Abby's sister a house. The girls were furious. They were his own daughters and they'd been given nothing. But the sister of their stepmother, a woman they thought only wanted Andrew for his money, was suddenly being gifted an entire house that would not do. Guess what? Guess what? Guess it's his money. He can do whatever the f*** he wants with it. <laughs> and now he's going to have to live or maybe die with the consequences. Emma and Lizzie were able to pressure their father into giving them the house they'd grown up in until their mother died. Unfortunately, these were wealthy white women and there were societal codes of ethics. While there was no law forbidding it, it would be deemed inappropriate for them to live in the house without a man present. It would be different if they were widows or if their father was deceased, but as long as there was some sort of male relative around, these women had no business living in a house by themselves. <laughs> Hundred some years ago, guys. A few weeks before the murder, they wound up selling the house back to their father for $5,000, about $160,000 today. Then there was the matter of the pigeons. Everyone knows that serial killers love to kill and torture animals before moving on to people, but Lizzie was the exact opposite. Lizzie was a lover of animals and built a roost for pigeons in their barn. There are conflicting reports about how important the pigeons were to her. Some say she loved them like pets. Some say that her attachment to the pigeons was exaggerated as a means to play up her motive for murder. And as part of Kevin's game, I vaguely remember that someone comes in and kills one of her pigeons and then she murders them. Horrifically. Something like that. Someone kills one of her beloved pigeons. It's very Tesla-esque, isn't it? Regardless of how she felt about them, there are two facts that cannot be disputed. The first is that Lizzie truly was a lover of animals, leaving $30,000 after her death to the Fall River Animal Rescue League, a sum that is equivalent to over half a million dollars today. My, my. The other fact that cannot be disputed is what happened after she built the roost. Andrew didn't like it. He thought it would attract stupid children who had come to hunt the pigeons, so he set out to beat them 
at their own game. In May of 1892, in what would later turn out to be a brutal twist of irony, Lizzie's father grabbed a hatchet and slaughtered the pigeons in cold blood. An alternate theory for Andrew's rationale is that he wanted to kill the pigeons because, well, free food. But either way, it's a bit of a move, Scrooge. In late June, Andrew and Abby took a short trip, something they rarely ever did because, well, trips cost money. When they returned, they discovered that a desk had been broken into and ransacked with items like cash, a pocketbook, and a watch that was a particular sentimental value to Abby. Having been stolen in today's money, it would be over $2,000 worth that was stolen, and it seems it was all items that had been targeted by a burglar. A police investigation turned up nothing, though it's heavily speculated that Lizzie was the guilty party. She's rumored to have taken to shoplifting in the years prior to the murders, though nothing has ever been substantiated. The following month, the family had some sort of arguments. Whatever it was about, it was bad enough that both Emma and Lizzie took a vacation to New Bedford. They would return a few days later, one week before the murders. For the first four days Lizzie was back, she stayed at the 1890s equivalent of an Airbnb before going back home. So, maybe just a, a B&B? A guest house? 40 Wax with a Wet Noodle on August the 2nd, something the family ate did not agree with them. Andrew and Abby, oh, I've remembered something else. She poisoned them all. <laughs> uh, what was the rules? You have to have a drink, or if I get it wrong, you have a drink? I don't remember. Let's just carry on. Andrew and Abby spends all night taking turns on the chamber pot. If Abby had indeed only married Andrew for her money, she was no doubt extremely regretting it by this point. The next morning, as soon as the family position across the street opened, Abby immediately went to see him. Her first assumption was that someone was trying to poison them, or more specifically Andrew. Not only was Andrew disliked by the town in general for being a bit of a miserly douchebag, but he had made a lot of specific enemies throughout his questionable business dealings as well. Dr. Bowen listened to Abby's complaints and concluded that it was almost certainly food poisoning. There was mutton that was left out on the stove for days on end to be reused in different meals that a family friend believed to be the source of the food poisoning. This certainly isn't a terrible guess. Dr. Bowen had been concerned about how sick Abby seemed, fearing that she may begin vomiting in his office. Later that day, he crossed the street to check on Abby and Andrew and see if his prescription of castor oil had helped any of their symptoms at all. I, wonder, I know nothing about castor oil is that it's i guess it must be oil from the castor plant not entirely sure what a castor plant is but this could be this is back in the day so maybe it's helpful or maybe it's just a potion he's like take two things eye of newt it is said that lizzie immediately ran upstairs in shame when the doctor came by instantly knowing what was about to happen andrew was incensed that his wife had incurred a doctor's bill and he refused to be examined by dr bowen he insisted that he felt fine an obvious lie and that he would not be paying for the house call what a treat this guy was to live with yeah there are some things where it's like how about we don't skimp on money like healthcare. <laughs> Oh, I'm just joking. Healthcare's free because I live in Europe. <laughs> I mean, free. You pay for it, of course, but like, it's not a point of care. It's, you know, yeah, it, it, I don't need to explain this. But I do feel like, in terms of like places I spend money, is there anything is to do with health or whatever? I'm like, yeah, 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 cool. That's a, that's a good place to spend money. <laughs> like, if you're being poisoned, maybe you should have that checked out. <laughs> A few hours later, Lizzie went into town to the pharmacist. She insisted on being sold prussic acid, also known as cyanide. Uh-oh. But the pharmacist refused, believing that she wanted it with some inferious intent. That same afternoon, John Morse arrived to stay with the family. John was the girls' uncle, and he was the brother of their biological mother. He also seems to be the one and only friend that Andrew had 
in his life. He had arrived in Fall River to stay for an indeterminate amount of time and discuss business with Andrew. There is speculation that the conversations pertained to property transfer, which fueled further tensions within the house but nothing substantive. That night, Lizzie went to visit her longtime friend Alice Russell for a couple of hours. She talked about her family potentially being poisoned and mentioned that she was worried for her life, wanting to sleep with one eye open for fear that Andrew's enemies would burn the house down with them all inside. Was Lizzie genuinely afraid, or was she just trying to create seeds of doubt for a possible defense? Yes, yes, it was definitely one of those two options. <laughs> it wasn't. She arrived home around 9pm and immediately went to bed, ignoring her father and uncle who were in the sitting room. The next morning, August the 4th, 1892, the family began the day with breakfast. Lizzie did not join them, but as we said, it was common for both Emma and Lizzie not to eat with their parents. John left the house to visit some family around town, and Andrew went for his normal morning walk to run errands and other work-related things. Emma went out to spend the day with friends, while Bridget went out to the backyard to vomit from the food poisoning that had snuck up on them all. She had also been ordered by Abby to wash the windows both inside and out. This left only Abby and Lizzie inside the house. Bridget briefly came back inside to wash the dishes. <laughs> it's a hard life for Bridget, isn't it? It's like, while you're outside throwing up from the food poisoning, make sure you wash down those windows, yes, yeah, servants? But <laughs> holy <laughs> how about a little bit of sympathy? Let her take the day off. She's been poisoned. I mean, food poisoned, maybe, most likely just poisoned. She then went out to clean the windows. She and Lizzie were lingering by the doorway and told her that she didn't need to lock the door as long as she was outside cleaning. This is in direct defiance of Andrew's previous declaration that all doors should be looked at, locked at all times following the apparent break-in and the burglary. She is asking them to be left open so that she has an excuse. So she's going to murder someone and then she's going to be like, well, the maid left the doors open and someone came in and murdered them because if they're locked, it's going to be a lot harder to get away with that. Right? Right? I'm not sure if I'm just guessing that or whether I remember this from the previous story. I think I'm just deducing that, so let's see. Abby spent the next hour cleaning up around the house, despite the fact that they had a live-in maid. At some point, when she was in the guest bedroom making the bed, she was interrupted. Facing her attacker, she saw the hatchet swinging directly at her head. She collapsed to the ground on her hands and knees, where she suffered 17 more blows to the head destroying her skull. Jesus Christ, it's proper axe murder. Andrew returned home at about 10.30am. He was home much earlier than normal, likely because he was still suffering from the previous day's food poisoning. He couldn't get his key to open the door, so he knocked on the door to be let in. Bridget was now inside cleaning the windows, so she heard the knocking and went to open the door. She unlocked the door but struggled to open it, the intense August heat likely having caused the wood to expand and jam the door. As she struggled with the door, Bridget claimed to have heard Lizzie laugh from the top of the stairs, mere feet Away from Abby's body, but she never actually saw Lizzie. After letting Andrew in, Bridget went upstairs to rest from both the heat and also from still being sick. Andrew rested on the couch in the sitting room. Just before 11am, Andrew was asleep on the couch. He never woke up when the hatchet swung down, cutting one of his eyes cleanly in half. So he certainly wasn't awake for the next 10 strikes from the weapon. 10 minutes later, Lizzie called to Bridget upstairs. Come quick, father's dead. Someone came in and killed him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Dr. Bowen arrived from across the street to pronounce the couple dead. Emma received a telegram while with her friends in Fairhaven informing her of the murder of her parents, but she didn't take any of the first three available trains back to Fall River. 
Wow. <laughs> really? With Abby having died first, all of her assets transferred to Andrew. Andrew was rumored to have a will, but none could be found. Once Lizzie was accused of murder, she was no longer eligible to inherit. Emma became the sole benefactor of Andrew's entire st estate, worth nearly $10 million in today's money. Wow. And this guy didn't have electricity in his house? <laughs> Holy sh Trial of the Century the rhyme I mentioned earlier has a much less known second verse. Andrew Borden is now dead. Lizzie hit him on the head. Up in heaven, he will sing. On the gallows, she will swing. Considering how universally reviled Andrew was, it's a bit surprising to hear children argue that he would now be up in heaven. It took nearly a year before Lizzie would finally go to trial, but everybody already knew the outcome. The famous rhyme began circulating long before the trial even commenced. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Way to go, not contaminating your jury pool there. <laughs> and it left no ambiguity. Lizzie Borden murdered her parents, and she would hang for her crimes. <laughs> because a rhyme said so. The trial itself lasted 15 days and was a sensational spectacle. People lined up outside the courthouse to fight for seats so that they could watch the trial live and in person, rather than having to read about it later in the papers. It was a jury trial with three judges and 12 jurors. <laughs> oh my god, wait, there are jury trials with three judges? <laughs> they, did they just want to watch? For days, the prosecution called witness after witness. They opened the trial by bringing in the actual skulls of Abby and Andrew and showing how the hatchet they had found was the perfect size. The hatchet came from the Borden's basement and the handle was broken off. It was a clean break. It appeared to have been done recently. Unlike the other two axes and two hatchets in the basement, the dust and dirt covering the alleged murder weapon had been put there recently and intentionally to give the impression of it having been untouched like the others. What are you doing? Why, why is people's obsession with hiding weapons? They're going to find the weapon. You have to destroy it. Throw it in the sea. Burn the handle and then throw it in the sea. Come on. Witnesses testified to Lizzie's attempt to buy poison the day before the murder, the apparent poisoning of her family from which they'd all been recovering, and Lizzie burning a dress in her backyard the night following the murder. Uh, what? Okay. By Lizzie's own testimony, there was no one else in the house except her, her parents, and Bridget, and that Bridget could not have possibly committed the murders. She had also been interrogated by the police for two days after she was arrested. During that inquest, she gave contradictory answers, couldn't keep her story straight, volunteered information that would hurt her case, and refused to answer questions that would have been beneficial. During the trial, she testified that a messenger had delivered a letter to the house summoning Abby to a sick friend's house the day of the murder. Lizzie had given the letter to Abby and assumed that she was no longer home rather than being murdered upstairs. As for her father, she claimed to have gone to the loft of the barn for 20 to 30 minutes and found her dead father when she came back inside. The prosecution, this is all like, yeah, okay, it seems pretty likely she did it, but it's also like totally circumstantial and sure she could have been out. There's no real direct evidence linking her to this so far, unless I'm missing something. They don't have all that fingerprints and DNA sh This is back in the day. I mean... I get the feeling they're definitely going to hang her, <laughs> but it doesn't, it, it's not, this wouldn't fly today, I feel. The prosecution argued that the police had never found the note Lizzie claimed to have given to Abby. They also cited the fact that it was a sweltering 100 degrees out that day, and there was no way that Lizzie could have survived the heat of the loft for that long. What, 20 to 30 minutes? Even if it was 100 degrees, even if it was like 50 degrees in there? You, you could survive. It's not going to be pleasant. It's very unlikely that you'd want to be up there for that amount of time, but it's not impossible. Further, they found that the dust and dirt in the loft appeared to be undisturbed, indicating that nobody had been up there. 
indicating but not proving it took the jury only 30 minutes to decide on the verdict but they chose to wait another hour before returning from their deliberation so as not to give the appearance of having rushed their decision <laughs> do you think that happens often with juries you know because sometimes you hear like they deliberated for 12 minutes and you're like oh that was just like slam dunk guilty or not guilty but sometimes they'll be like they deliberated for four hours unanimous guilty verdict and then it's like wait so what were you doing for like four hours just like we got in there it's like they're guilty of sin right yes sir guilty of sin all around and then they're like we should wait here eat some of this free food and then go back out in four hours to make people thought that we thought about it right does anyone want to vote not guilty so it looks a bit more like we had a vote they were clearly in unanimous agreement and after their 90-minute deliberation they walked back into the courtroom when asked for the verdict the jury's foreman simply said not guilty wow okay oh no of course i now remember this from the original video she goes and lives with her sister in that fancy neighborhood because she was not guilty but everyone thought she was guilty oh i totally remember the end of the video whatever the rules were there's things how did this happen Following the verdict, the New York Times published an editorial that seemed to echo the sentiment of every newspaper around the country. It, uh, quote, It will be a certain relief to every right-minded man or woman who has followed the case to learn that the jury at New Bedford has not only acquitted Miss Lizzie Borden of the atrocious crime which, with, with which she was charged, but has done so with a promptness that was very significant. Okay, so it just seems there wasn't enough evidence. And there wasn't enough evidence. I completely agree good that insidious rhyme had poisoned the well in fall river and many residents were shocked and appalled by the not guilty verdict if we can't trust children's rhymes to be an accurate source of local current events then who can we trust residents may have been outraged by the verdict but no one who watched the trial was surprised yeah because you built up the the public the like the poisoned well the the, the jury has been swayed by rhymes <laughs> But when it actually comes to facts, the people in the courtroom are like, this is not enough facts. Like, I agree, there's not enough facts. Firstly, there's the matter of the inquest. The two-day-long interrogation began with Lizzie asking to have a lawyer present. The police refused, <laughs> stating that the... Wait, what's that? This is in the Constitution, isn't it? Isn't there something like right to counsel or something like that? Uh, stating that the inquest had to be performed in private. <laughs> lawyer, 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 lawyer. Always get a lawyer. Get that lawyer. They argued that at that point she was merely a suspect and not being held under arrest, so there was no need to allow a lawyer to be present. Then shut the f <laughs> Don't say a goddamn word. Let them arrest you. Get a lawyer. The court disagreed and said that not only should she have had her lawyer present, but that she shouldn't have been informed that she should have been informed of her constitutional right to remain silent. Yes. Shut the f up wait for the lawyer even if it couldn't be used in court from a historical standpoint in assessing her guilt the inquest is useless garbage following the discovery of the bodies the stress and trauma resulted in lizzie experiencing those women's problems that we mentioned earlier she had been visited by her doctor and given the only medication at the time that was known to handle such difficulties so every moment of every day she spent that she spent in the police station for the entirety of her inquest lizzie was half her tits on morphine more specifically she was on double the normal dose of morphine that was given at the time be stressed out have some morphine i thought we were talking about there was like a it was like a a weird like original like masturbator essentially which doctors used to use on women for like when they had hysteria and stuff like back in the day when kevin was talking about like the weird medical treatments that's what i thought he was talking about but no 
Just good old morphine. Anything Lizzie said or did during her inquest that would be considered abnormal can essentially be thrown out. One thing of note is that despite her being out of her mind on opiates while interrogated for two days by police who weren't afraid to do things like refuse her request for a lawyer, at no point did she make anything resembling a confession. She was confused, contradicted herself, and made claims that seemed well outside the realm of possibility. But the police could not get a confession out of her. Then there's the murder weapon. Was it the murder weapon? Other than the relative size of the blade being appropriate for the wounds found in Abby and Andrew's skull, there was nothing to tie to the murder itself. The missing axe handle was never found, and the top half, particularly the wood where it was broken off, was sent for forensic testing. Not a single drop of blood was ever found. There's also the matter of the poison she attempted to buy. The prosecution tried to call witnesses to attest to the fact that cyanide had no use in cleaning seal skin, but the court rejected these witnesses. It didn't actually matter whether it was an effective method of cleaning a cape. Yeah, I mean, all it's going to matter is whether she's mistakenly thinks it is, which would be a fairly good defensive argument. All that mattered where it was whether she thought it or not. Yes, exactly. The bodies had been subjected to an autopsy, and naturally they were checked for poison given the symptoms that they'd been experiencing before the brutal murders. No evidence of poison was found. It really was just a piece of bad meat or fish. Yeah, I forgot about that. And that uh, that the poison, uh, poison the day before thing was just bad food. They know that. Crazy. Innocence. Innocence. Or, I mean, we were already at nowhere close enough to be guilty, and now we're just drifting towards maybe she didn't do this. The burning of the dress is a pretty suspicious act, but it was something that Emma and Lizzie both did frequently to dispose of old clothes. Emma testified that she was the one that told Lizzie to burn the dress because some paint had spilled on it and dried. Both Emma and Lizzie's friend Alice tried to testify that they routinely burned dresses, but the court did not allow that testimony. Ultimately, the prosecution's entire case came down to the fact that no one else could have committed the murders. They had no real physical evidence to tie Lizzie to the crimes. The hatchet was not convincing as the murder weapon. The prosecution's opening statement began with revealing the victim's skulls, the sight of which immediately made Lizzie faint. Not a great way to start a trial for the prosecutors. And well, it was downhill from there. One by one, every witness was turned around by Lizzie's high-priced lawyers. Her two defense attorneys were Andrew Jennings, no relation. Oh, Kevin Jennings is uh, the author of this piece. And former governor of Massachusetts, George D. Robinson. The defense barely had any of their own witnesses because they didn't need them. The prosecution would make their case, but on cross-examination, nearly every witness contradicted their testimony and wound up siding with the defense's portrayal of events. That's savage. It's like a prosecution calls a witness, and by the end of it, they're like, guys, I'm sorry, but I I'm with the other guy now. <laughs> no, you're wrong. The other guys, these, so, these lawyers are brilliant. <laughs> While the prosecution tried simply to prove that Lizzie must be guilty because no one else could, me, could be, the defense countered by asking how on earth Lizzie could be guilty. The doctor put Andrew's time of death at 8 to 13 minutes before Lizzie found the body and alerted Bridget. Well, she could just wait by the body and then alert her. Allegedly, Lizzie had just brutally murdered her stepmother with 18 blows from a hatchet and her father with 11 more. There was blood everywhere. There was an eyeball popping out of its socket. It was a gruesome scene, but there was not a drop of blood on Lizzie or her clothing. So 8 to 13 minutes to, like, fully clean up from a murder on your, like, mm, from an axe murder? That's a lot of blood to clean up. I don't think so. How could she possibly have committed these two murders and managed to keep her body, her clothing, and the hatchet perfectly clean, as well as place the hatchet back in the basement, cover it in dust, and dispose of the new broken angel in such a way that it would be never found, all in a span of 8 to 13 minutes? She couldn't. It's impossible. Before you try and answer that, remember that her cheap-ass father wouldn't pay for indoor plumbing, so she had no access to running water to help 
in a cleanup effort. The prosecution countered this claim by arguing that Lizzie could have committed the murders in the nude and then covered her body in a nice clean dress. This claim was largely ridiculed and definitely did not help their case. No, that is a. <laughs> even if you think it might be legitimate, it's just going to sound silly, so don't go there. Of the few witnesses the defense called, there were neighbors that had seen Lizzie leaving the barn around the time she claimed to have and who saw no blood on her. Another neighbor saw a suspicious man around the house at some point that morning. That morning, there was also a plumber and an electrician that testified to having been in the loft of the barn on the day before the murder. They didn't witness anything important, but the fact that somebody was absolutely up there the day before four contradicted the prosecution's claim that the dust and dirt proved that no one had been there in ages. This case has been utterly dismantled by these incredible lawyers. It's very impressive. As for if someone could have survived the heat of the loft on that warm August day, well, that was all a lie from the prosecution that still persists to this day. It was a very hot summer in Fall River, to be sure. In fact, 90 people, mostly children, died from the heat. However, it was only 83 degrees on August the 4th. That's still pretty hot, but it's not the sweltering 100 degrees that's being claimed in court. Yeah, I know what those are vaguely in Celsius. What, 100's like mid-30s, something like that? And 83's like... What, it's got to be like late 20s, mid 20s? Mid 20s is pleasant. Mid 30s is unbearably hot. It's on fire! Also, the attacks were vicious and required some amount of strength to break the skulls as severely as they were broken. Lizzie wasn't exactly in danger of being called up by Vince McMahon to come wrestle for the WWE, but she was still a sturdy gal. There's no doubt in my mind that she would have possessed the physical strength necessary to inflict the wounds that Abby and Andrew suffered. But I wasn't on the jury, and the jurors felt differently. Yeah, just because she's capable physically of doing it doesn't mean she did. Uh, the 12 men looked at Lizzie and saw a petite woman incapable of such a feat of strength. Yeah, that's a, there's, there's, there's plenty of other evidence that she did do this, or just more lack of evidence that she did. They saw the woman that fainted at the sight of her murdered parents' skulls, and above all, they saw a wealthy white woman who was generous, loved animals, and taught their children at Sunday school. I feel like this case should have probably been tried somewhere else other than the town where it happened, given how utterly poisoned the, the, the jury seemed to be. With only circumstantial evidence and nothing physically to actually tie Lizzie to the crime, there was no way they could believe that she was guilty, even under the mildest scrutiny, let alone beyond all reasonable doubt. Lizzie Borden's trial was the O.J. Simpson trial of the 19th century. It drew huge media attention, massive public interest, and thanks to that rhyme, everybody already knows she was guilty before the trial even began. The only difference is that no one who followed Lizzie's trial closely could have possibly believed that she was going to be convicted. Life is a free will. Lizzie Borden got her way for her crimes she did not pay. Pray she doesn't find you too, or else she'll give you 42. After her acquittal, Lizzie burst into tears in the courtroom before hugging her sister and saying that she wanted to go home. Now that they were extraordinarily wealthy and, did not and were not restricted by their father's need to never spend a penny, the girls were finally free to fulfill their dream of buying a house on the hill. They moved into a large, modern house complete with toilets and electricity. Lizzie would name the house Maplecroft. It's unclear whether she was now entitled to half of the inheritance or if her sister simply shared the money with her, as they had remained close throughout this entire ordeal. Yeah, this is one of those things. It's like, bro. So this guy's saving all his life. He's worth ten million dollars. He doesn't have plumbing in his house, and then he he dies, and his kids just get it all and spend it all. And it's like, why, my dude? Why? Like, <laughs> it's so crazy. 
I mean, leave your family something, sure, they could still be very comfortable. But I guess you just get in the mindset of not spending any money, right? Just making money, not spending money. Okay. Lizzie may have been a free woman, but most of Fall River's residents believed that she was guilty of murder and had updated the rhyme's second verse to reflect the court's failure to send her swinging in the gallows. Because of this, Maplecroft wasn't the only thing that Lizzie was going to give a new name. And who else would ever suspect that Elizabeth Borden was actually Lizzie Borden in disguise? <laughs> As I think it's basically the same name. It'd be like, no, 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 I'm now going to go by Cy. <laughs> and no one will know it's me, the new YouTuber, Cy Whistler. I did mention that she got good grades in school because she worked hard, not because she was especially clever, right? <laughs> Emma and Lizzie enjoyed the next 12 years living together on Maplecroft with their staff of living servants. Lizzie was also quite fond of theatre, and particularly of the actress Nance O'Neill, whom she met in 1904 when O'Neill was performing in Boston. The two quickly became close friends, which immediately sparked controversy and gossip. Two women, one in their 30s, the other in their 40s, were good friends, and neither of them was married? Well, obviously, they must be lesbian lovers, because what other rational answers could there be? <laughs> what, did no one just have friends back in the day? I mean... Their actual relationship is probably not important. What mattered is that Emma did not particularly approve of this friendship, or at least of the lavish parties that Lizzie was throwing in Nance's honor at Maplecroft. After the third such party, Emma and Lizzie got into a fight. The details of the fight are unknown, but Emma left Maplecroft and moved to New Hampshire to live the rest of her days as a recluse, pretty much the only reason anyone would ever move to New Hampshire. <laughs> I know nothing about New Hampshire. It sounds nice. Maybe Hampshire's quite a nice place in the UK. And maybe that's why I think, oh, New Hampshire, it sounds nice. <laughs> Lizzie would live alone with her housekeepers for the rest of her life, never marrying and remaining a pariah. She would also have to deal with the neighborhood children throwing eggs and pebbles at her house at night to see if they could anger the supposed murderer. I know kids are stupid, but this is a special kind of stupid. The only reason to throw eggs at her house is because you think she's a murderer who's unfairly got away with it. But if you think she's actually a murderer, why would you go out of your way to piss her off? I don't know, Kevin. Kids gonna be kids. Kids gonna be like, this is exciting. It's like, why would you swear at the older kids when you're a kid? Because you know they're, they're bigger than you. They're gonna hit you, but you do it anyway because it's exciting. <laughs> and kids also can't think ahead. They don't understand the consequences of their actions. If you're that bored, just go to the pharmacy and get a bottle of children's morphine. <laughs> you dumbass kids. Yeah, back in the day definitely existed. On June the 1st, 1927, Lizzie Borden died in pneumonia. Nine days later, Emma died at a nursing home in Newmarket, New Hampshire. The girls were buried side by side in the family burial plot in Fall River. I'm going to give all of these numbers in today's values for simplicity's sake, but at the time of her death, Lizzie was worth over $5 million. I already mentioned that she left over half a million to the Animal Rescue League. Her closest friend and one of her cousins each received $125,000, and many of her other friends and family members each received amounts ranging from twenty dollars to $100,000. She also willed $10,000 to be put in trust for perpetual care and maintenance of her father's grave, exactly like someone who brutally murdered their father to get his money would have done. Yeah, except no. I don't think she's guilty. I don't think she's guilty. I don't know how I felt after recording that previous video. I mean, it's a biographics video, so I don't give my opinion. But I don't think she's guilty of this. Wrap up. So who really killed Andrew and Abby Borden? Well, the prevailing theory is still that Lizzie did it. She had a motive, and there's no one else that was known to be in the house besides Bridget. Dr. Bowen ruled that the murders happened about 90 minutes apart, which means that if there was an intruder, they'd have had to hide out in the house the entire time after killing Abby while they waited for Andrew, and hopefully only Andrew, to return. That is possible, but it seems unlikely. But is it less likely than Lizzie being able to commit both murders without getting a drop of blood anywhere on her? Also, the timeline put forth has been called into question as well. 
Medical science was a lot different 130 years ago. It's a shocker, we know. The time of death wasn't scientific at all. It was literally just the doctor's best guess based on his experience and how dry the blood around the bodies was. The thing is, the room where Abby was found was on the second floor and facing the sun, while the room where Andrew was found was on the first floor and, and in the shade. The temperatures in these rooms would have been different by at least three to four degrees, if not more. There's no indication that this was accounted for by Dr. Bowen, which means that the murders could have been as little as 15 minutes apart. Suddenly, the idea of an intruder doesn't sound nearly as implausible. No, I, th I think it could be an intruder. I don't think it was her. Or have I just been persuaded by these super expensive lawyers' really good arguments? I mean, it seems very conclusive. And what about Emma? Sure, she has an alibi, but Emma's ghost came to a former residence of Fall River in a dream and explained exactly how she had committed the murders. That may be ridiculous because ghosts aren't real, but there are those who believe that Emma actually committed the murders and met with her friends afterwards. Yeah, idiots. <laughs> She's got a lot hard locked in alibi. There's also the uncle-brother-in-law John Morse. It was considered noteworthy that John traveled to visit them for an indeterminate amount of time, but brought almost nothing with him. He was also a butcher by trade and allegedly brought a meat cleaver with him everywhere, a weapon that potentially could have fit the crime scene better than a hatchet. I want to call bullshit based on my experience as a butcher, but I wasn't a butcher in the 1800s, so I guess it's possible. I don't know, I've used a, like a butcher's... I'm not, I've not been a butcher, but I've like chopped up big pieces of meat with like butcher's knives and... Um, I can't remember the name of the knife now. <laughs> cleaver, a meat cleaver, and a little hatchet. Uh, I imagine it's not like could not be that different. Lizzie may be the best specific suspect we have, but I think it being an intruder may be more likely. Andrew was hated enough that Abby genuinely thought one of his enemies had tried to poison them to death, and if the timeline was only 15 minutes instead of 90, then it's a lot easier to believe. Much of the lack of evidence against Lizzie could be explained by the fact that she was not immediately considered a suspect, so her room was not thoroughly checked the day of the murder, but the lack of blood anywhere on her is really a big thing that's hard to explain. There's no way she could have committed these murders without getting covered in blood. Even if she quickly changed her dress, washing the blood off of herself without running water, it was going to be more than a little difficult. Unfortunately, it's highly unlikely that any new evidence is going to suddenly appear in this case. Yes, it's been a long time. Dreams of ghosts nonwithstanding. So we'll never have a satisfying suspect for this case. If there's anything to be learned from this story, it's to never underestimate the power of a rhyme. The people of Fall River had been hearing the rhyme about Lizzie Borden for months before the trial, and most of them believed it was true without any proof or explanation. Likewise, it didn't matter how strong the case was against O.J. Simpson. All the DNA evidence in the world can't compete with, if it doesn't fit, <laughs> you must acquit. Yeah, I think we've got a video on O.J. coming up, actually. So that'll be fun. Sprinkled with alleged lease. Um, thank you so much for watching. If you enjoyed this episode, please do click the like button, subscribe if you're listening to it in its podcast form. A review would be fantastic. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.